and welcome to Flop Pod. I'm Lynn Panting. This week, I'm talking to the most excellent Kat Burke, and her flop story got me thinking about opinions, specifically unsolicited opinions. I think that I'm someone, I say what I mean, and I mean what I say. And of late, I've really made a rule for myself. And my rule about opinions is, if asked, or if in an emergency. Often, you know, there's things happening in the lives of your family members or the lives of your friends that you might have an opinion about. And if they ask me, I will absolutely give my honest opinion. But if they don't ask, I'll just keep that to myself. On the other side of things, if they haven't asked and I think that someone's in some real danger, I will go ahead um, and say what I need to say regardless of whether it's going to be particularly popular or if it's going to go down well or not. So that's the rule that I've made for myself in recent years. But I do understand that in my past, I would say particularly in my 20s, I really had a lot of opinions about a lot of things that I like to uh, express loudly Um And uh, certainly my opinions were unsolicited. And I think about that a lot. Um, I think about maybe unnecessarily hurt feelings. uh, And I think about what may have led me to say things. Um, And I do think it's a personal flop and a personal failure because it did kind of come down to insecurity. Maybe I needed to put someone else down so that I could feel better about myself. You know, um, make you feel tiny to make me feel tall kind of situation. So that's a personal flop in my life that I have thought a lot about. And listening to Kat's story has made me reflect on being on both sides of uh, unsolicited opinions. Here's Kat. Kat Burke is an actor, producer, and sound designer with an honors in theater and a minor in music from Bishop's University. She's first string, manager of the Hall's box office, and she's the calm in the storm when you've arsed something up. Welcome, Kat. (laughs) That's so lovely. I think definitely very accurate. There's a few times where I've popped by the box office after I've earned something up either like artistically or like didn't buy tickets or in my life and definitely your presence. You don't even really need to do anything. I just feel very calm. Oh, well, thank you. You're very welcome. Alone. If, if the people that are like not buying tickets or showing up late, it's always the artist's. <laughs> yes, I know. There's one particularly bad one. Myself and Mark got into a uh, a situation right before in the cut of it. And I know that we were the last people that arrived. Now, we didn't arrive that much later after the other person. We were maybe 15 seconds after the other person, but we were soaking wet. We had just carried someone to their home. And then we were both very concerned that we might not make it out of there alive. It was a definite situation. And then we went to the bar to get wine. And we understood that that was not cooth, but there was no other way to go about it because we had just been out in the rain for 45 minutes attempting to help someone. Uh, but it got very, um, yeah, it got very shady very quick. I wish that every box office story were like that. <laughs> Rather than, oh, I just didn't show up. Yep. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your art's origin story? 
um, well, I guess I've been doing theater and music stuff since I was a kid. I was in a production company in my hometown of Stouffville, Ontario, that for a while, uh, the director just um, rewrote Disney scripts. So we did The Little Mermaid and we did Hercules as did musical. You, did you have a favorite? Um, I liked Hercules. Hercules is great. The music in Hercules is so much fun. It's I got to play Cyclops. Oh, it's unsung. It's a really great movie. Zero to Hero is a jam. So good. Yeah, and uh, I did that. I took flute lessons since I was a kid and um, went to university for music, applied in music, knowing that I didn't want to study music because then I would hate it but needed to get in. And bishops, you didn't have to audition to get in. I thought that sounded like fun. Why stress myself out? Um, and then when I got there, discovered the theater department and just got sucked in to the bubble and what, ended what, up with the theater honors and music minor. What, um, did you go in for a specific instrument for music, piano, voice, flute? Flute and voice. Amazing. Yep. And uh, there was the most fantastic choir that I've ever been in. Not knowing that I was going to be in the most fantastic choir. It's divided into, in the fall semester, you perform a choral piece. And we've done like a whole bunch, but we did Carmina Burano one year and like brought in the timpani, like it was intense. And then I was like, okay, this, this was fun. I'll do a spring semester choir. And spring semester is all pop and musicals. So I just ended up falling into this choir through like we had to go into choir if you were in voice and then it ended up being the best thing that I probably did at university. And then how did you end up in Newfoundland then? Um, so after university, I moved to Halifax with a friend and then lived there for two years and decided I didn't like it. And I had a friend who was living here and working here, Chelsea McNeil. And I was talking to her one day and she was like, hey, do you maybe want to move to Newfoundland? And I was like, um, that sounds crazy, but I don't really have anything else on the go. So I guess she was just starting up Model Citizens. And so every year and like sometime in the summer, there's a, a message on my, there's a post on my wall on Facebook that says, hey, are you interested in a job in Newfoundland? <laughs> and that's how it happened. And I kind of thought, well, I'm either going to move back home to Ontario, which I don't want to do. I was 23, 24. I had no, like, ties, no partners, no kids. So, you know, why not? And did you work at Model Citizen when you got here? No, I ended up getting a job at a Chinese food restaurant. <laughs> That's a that's where I met Mark. I met Mark at Model Citizens. Yes, because I was going to say because Mark worked at Model Citizens. Oh my goodness, the world is so small. And now I teach uh, Chelsea McNeil's daughter. So that's funny. That's you. You've become part of like the teeny tiny St. John's community just in in the time that you've been here. Um, can you tell us then a little bit about your flop story? It kind of ties into that. 
Um, I was texting Sharon King Campbell, previous flop pod interviewee, and I said, I don't know what my flop is. Was it that time that that woman in Halifax said that everything about the production was my fault and I quit acting for eight years? And she said, I think it might be. Oh, no. Oh, you got to tell us more. Okay, start at the very beginning. <clears throat> so right out of uh, theater school, I moved to Halifax and got a job at a dinner theater doing a Christmas show. And I mean, that's kind of unheard of, like right out of university, you get this job. It was great. I had a great time. There were three productions on the go. And so once we'd opened all three productions, we all went out for a drink. And the productions were doing okay, I guess. They were doing pretty well. They were Christmas shows. And um, this one woman who was a friend of the owners and was involved in possibly another one of the productions, I don't remember. We all were very drunk at this point. So details are cloudy. But we were sitting around in a circle and she was like, why don't we say everything, something nice about everyone around us? And I was like, that sounds great. And she started talking and then she got to me and it all of a sudden just turned really mean. And she said that the reason my production was selling less than all the other productions was me and that it was all my fault. And like, I have no memory of saying anything except silently crying in front of everyone there. And I never told anyone about it. I never acknowledged it. And then when I didn't get into the next production, I just quit acting which now is really funny because like how naive and like silly do I have to be to believe this woman and how dramatic is it for me to be just be like, okay, well, I'm quitting acting then. Like, Oh, but how old were you? 23 or 24. It was my first gig. Oh my God. That's horrific. And like, I've had an acting teacher who said that before because they're the kind of teacher that like wants to break you down before they build you back up and like. Sure, and there's, the heart. there's a lot of that. Do you think that um, because performing is kind of a public act that the public feels, uh, and this is, let's put this aside from social media because that's like a whole other ball of wax and a whole other culture. But do you think that because performance is public that the audience feels that they have a right to tell you how they feel? I guess. Because hey. they're inherently you're doing the show for them, not you. I, I think that's an important distinction um, in terms of ego, but then in terms of like delivery of products, they've paid their ticket and they've received their product. Sometimes I order fries and sometimes they are exactly, exactly hit the spot and it's awesome. And then sometimes I order fries and they don't. It's not really that fries are that much different in quality, let's be honest. It's just sometimes I'm feeling them and sometimes I'm not. So there's like, uh, there's a subjectivity uh, to, you know what I mean? Like uh, to the experience on, on like the viewer side of the audience as well. Oh my goodness, Kat, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. How have you been able to um, unpack that in later years? Because obviously you didn't for a long time. Um, yeah. And then when you came around to it, like how did that happen for you? Well, I just, after that happened, I started working in tech. And I got a job at Neptune Theater in Halifax 
being on the crew. I did lights with an awesome group of people. It was really cool. It felt really supportive, felt really safe. And I was like, maybe this is just what I do now. And then I moved here and um, there's like no stage managers here. And I was like, I've done that before poorly, I might add, but you know, it's a gig and I could, I could do it. And so I started stage managing and then realized that that was not at all what I wanted to do. And I was auditioning for stuff, but I wasn't, I had no confidence. Like I wasn't getting cast in things. I was going into these auditions being like, no one's ever going to cast you because that one woman told me, told you you weren't very good. So I kept at it, but I was working in a restaurant and I just didn't have any free time. But it turns out that working in the restaurant, particularly um, working at Chinched with a bunch of really awesome people ended up being the thing that builded my confidence back up because I was really good at serving and serving is basically just acting and talking to people and convincing them that they want to buy things and like trying to form a connection with them. So through that, I was like, okay, getting my confidence back, maybe I could. And then I started kind of auditioning again. And, and did you, did you no. have a moment where you knew then that you had kind of nailed it? Maybe you're not the kind of person that is like, yeah, I absolutely nailed that. But did you have a moment um, where you could acknowledge you're like, okay, I got this? Um, I think it was in 2015 when I got into the Grand Bank Theater Festival. And I was like, I got a summer festival. I got a summer festival. I think I'm going to be okay. <laughs> Um, what would your advice be for anyone that is feeling a little bit of uh, lapse of confidence? If you've listened to the rest of the podcast episodes, pretty much everyone talks about how they hate auditioning. There's maybe like two people that say auditioning is awesome and I, I'm a rock star, but like the majority of people um, do not like them and often, you know, suffer um, from a little bit of stage fright or um, suffer from lulls in confidence. Um, do you have a suggestion for how people can kind of crawl out of that state of mind? Definitely. It's just surround yourself with positive people. Like surround yourself with people who believe in you, regardless of whether it's your acting ability or your serving ability or your like math ability. I don't know. Just it's who you surround yourself with that really, for me, brought me back. And also ends up being the best working environments, regardless um, as to what your path is or what, you know, your vocation is. It's really the people that make it the people in your family, because that's, <laughs> that's work too. You're working with those people, your friendships, um, and of course, whatever you do for a living. I absolutely agree. And I only like working with the very best people. So I know exactly where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, something that you do that's very cool that I, I don't know very much about, despite the fact that um, it's, uh, it's one of the jobs that my dad has had uh, over the years, is that you are a sound designer. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that. Um, yeah, I started kind of in 2017. I just started doing things that terrified me. I was like, sure, I'm going to do stand up. Sure, I'm gonna like, I'm interested in sound design. And someone said, well, why don't you sound design a show? And I was like, cause I don't know how. And then they're like, well, you could learn. And a bunch of people said that to me and thought, okay, well, I guess I'll try it. 
and I love the idea of it. I love being like, cause it's like, it's really kind of sets, it sets a tone first of all. And it's really, you get to kind of manipulate the audience sometimes into things. And it's never the same, it's always different. And I just learned so much right off the bat. And then every show, it's like something else. I learn whether it's like what the job is or whether it's um, a technical aspect of like QLab, the program that, program that I use to do sound design every time is just a new, a new door opens there. Can you say a little bit more about leading the audience? Um, yeah, it's just like what someone can walk into a room and you have like a big like ba -ba -da -da when they walk in and then you set the moment, oh, this is going to be funny or oh, this is hilarious or you set the scene of a dark alley and you have the creepy music. It filters in. Otherwise, it's just a dark alley. It could just be regular dark alley or it could be a creepy dark alley. It could be a funny dark alley. The music really helps or the kind of background sound. And it really puts you in the moment too. And you hear like I did a hospital, the show Wit that's set mostly at a hospital and all the sounds and even working on the cut of it, I had hospital sound rooms and I had specifically looked up um, the sounds in a chemo lab, like the where you're getting your chemo. And some of the sounds, some of the patients came up to me afterwards and were like, I was right back in that room as soon as I heard that like pump or that beeping there. It was like being right back in that room. And that to me was like the best compliment that I could have ever received. That's so interesting. Is there um, certain sounds or a specific technique or use that is more impactful than another, do you find? What do you mean? Well, um, I'm just thinking about, um, I went to see the play, The Woman in Black, probably 400 years ago because it was before the hall renovation. And Sean Panting did the sound design for that. And the way that they did it was, um, I guess they're using the impact of horror movies. So horror movies, I think, I am not a big fan, but from what I can gather, um, they play on the volume aspect quite a bit to um, help with the jump scares and to build anxiety in the audience. So Sean's score was um, very discordant and loud and it just, um, you could actually feel it in your body. So it just, um, it was really effective in terms of like already heightening the experience for the audience. So that was just by volume, for example, but I was wondering if you, like use of volume or, or silence or background noise or starting the noise before the audience comes in, is there something that you found that like is an effective technique or is every show a little bit different? I think everything is different. One thing I have learned was I kind of got into sound design, not got into it, but one of the things I was like, ooh, I get to pick the pre-show music, that's awesome. And now I have become completely anti-pre-show music. I do not like to have pre-show music. It really doesn't set the scene in the way I want to. So when we were doing Clue with um, Nothing On Productions, I had pre-show music playing, but it was a thunderstorm and it was music that was coming from the house. So I did some distortions on it, first of all, to make it sound like it was coming from a record player. And second of all, to make it sound like it was coming from inside the house. 
So I'm not really sitting there playing like today's pop hits. You want music that's going to set the mood for the show and actually be a part of the show. As a performer, I hate the idea of a pre-show, but as a producer or a director or anyone on the creative team, I love the idea of a pre-show as a bookend and that idea of um, creating the setting before anyone steps on stage, I think is incredible. There is um, a piece that I think Neighborhood Danceworks presented, but I got to see it um, in Montreal um, called, hmm, Pig Lick um, is what it, the piece was called, and it it was ultimately a commentary on like a capitalism and consumption and internet culture and a grinder and all that kind of stuff. It was a lot of that. Um, but uh, and at one point during the show, um, the audience was served donuts, but before you walked in all you could smell was confection. Like you could smell things baking. And so they made that part of the experience. And I, it, it, you know, it was just kind of intangible, but really set the stage for what was gonna happen. It also made you incredibly hungry. So by the time you were offered, you know, the mid-show snack, like there's no way that you could resist. I heard about a show once that used smell and they had something obviously cooking or in bowls off stage. You could smell it. It was intentional. And then they were eating something. And then throughout the play, you discovered that they were cannibals and they were eating human. And that was the smell that you were smelling. And it just completely made you so uncomfortable. But what a fascinating way to, what another layer of like audience manipulation to be like, oh, you're so disgusted right now. Oh, I love that. I hate it as a performer because I hate <laughs> props. I hate just like, uh, I just, uh, it's just one other layer to uh, make a mistake with, uh, with me. But again, on the creative team, I love that there's a play called uh, Stockholm Syndrome. I'm sorry to all the playwrights um, and creators that I just, you know, I saw off the top of my head. I'm, I don't have a fact checker. Um, but Stockholm Syndrome, a lot of it takes place um, in a kitchen. And if I were to stage it, I would have them fully do the meal prep. Um, and it's a contemporary dance piece because it's quite violent. And so what they do is they use the dance to take the audience out of the violence of the moment because otherwise it, I think, would be, um, it would be damaging <laughs> to the audience to watch. So they kind of make the violence a little bit more uh, in terms of fantasy so that we can remove ourselves a little bit from it. But it's all set around a home and a kitchen and it's only really two rooms that are used. And um, it's really specific in the script that it's onions. And you know the smell of onions is kind of, um, smells like home and is really tasty if you're eating them, but if you're not eating them, they also can be kind of gross. Yeah. Uh, so I really, I really like that idea. And I, I had just wondered if there might be a sound equivalent and maybe specifically because every air is a little bit different. I'm wondering if there's a sound that you really dislike. Um, I don't like really high pitched noises, high pitched music high-pitched kind of stuff. I think that it's really, yeah, any kind of like white noise, distraction, crackly fuzz stuff just drives me. 
crackly things actually um, make me a little bit uh, nauseous. <laughs> um, so Lois Brown did a, a show where she crinkles paper close to a microphone and, and it made me actually physically ill uh, to, to listen to. And similarly, we do radio plays and um, Kevin Woolridge, who's a workmate of yours and a pal, um, does Foley. Um, and one of the effects that he brought in, I was like, you can use it in performance but we can't use it in rehearsal. <laughs> and if we use it in rehearsal, or if we use it in performance, then I think I need to be the furthest away from Kevin as is possible. So I definitely have a aversion to that crinkly sound. And two musics at once. If there's like something playing somewhere and then something else is playing somewhere else, I get my back up and I can't, I can't relax because I need to listen to both of them and it's very distracting. I absolutely understand that. Is there something that you're listening to right now, either music wise or podcast wise? There's something um, to? I listen to the BBC a lot. I, um, I don't know how I got into it a couple years ago, but it's just, it seemed to me like all of the new music that I was listening to was British and I found a way to listen online. And so I just started listening to BBC Radio One where all the like cool hip songs come from. And there's two shows in particular. There's a, a show called Future Sounds, which is just all new music constantly. There's a new song every day. And then there's a show called The Chillish Show, which is all just like really, really chill music, really kind of atmospheric stuff. And that happens on Sunday nights. And I'm just really kind of obsessed with both of those shows. That is a super hot tip. I listened to uh, Graham Norton's uh, radio show. So you can listen to the full four. He does a podcast, which you can get on podcast providers, like wherever you're listening to this one. Uh, but also through um, BBC, you can just listen to his full four hour show. And he plays absolutely everything from everyone. And the interviews are bananas. I just adore him. He's hilarious. So funny. Make, definitely made my pandemic. Yeah. Like rewatching Graham Norton clips. He's very funny. I could um, go down a YouTube rabbit hole of Graham Norton every time they come up because I follow it on Facebook and it'll just take me to the videos and I'll be like, oh, next one. Oh, that one sounds funny. Oh, that one. He has the best stories. The best stories and really is able to make everyone feel comfortable and um, maybe particularly when someone isn't comfortable maybe that's the best situation but like oh he's so great I'm wondering um what excites you about a project um I was actually thinking about this because I was listening to Sharon King Campbell's podcast or podcast she did with you guys before this to be like what am I getting into and uh a question that Mark had asked was like, what do you look for in a production or what is it, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, because of what happened to me, I look for people. Like what is exciting is the people that I'm working with. And I want to be working with people that I find safe. And I want to be working with people that, you know, I like and I like working with. So for me, working with people that I know and trust or working with people that I really want to work with is the dream for me. And do you think that um, 
culture is changing a little bit. Like you had mentioned, you had a prof that felt the need to like break you before they made you, um, you know, there's a little bit of a, I was talking to Danielle Irvine about this, a patriarchal approach um, to theater, which there's the idea of the top down. There's a little bit of an idea that you need to kind of yell to get your point across sometimes, not all the time. Um, but I'm finding more and more as time goes on, that culture has really shifted. And we're in society with any luck moving into um, a culture of, um, like, I was going to say co-conspirators, but that's not, the, that's not the right word. It's more, um, we're colleagues, uh, we're creating together and there's more of a, a team mentality. I'm wondering if you've experienced that or had any thoughts. Yeah, definitely. There's just more respect, like more focus on respect. Respectful workplaces is becoming standard practices. Even post-pandemic, I think these like 10 out of 12 days, 12 hour days, are going to be not a thing. You're not going to be able to push it as far as it can go anymore. Can you explain that to non-theater people? So I, I'm not the best at explaining this, but I think it's basically you're working 10 out of 12 hours a day. You have a lunch and a supper and then breaks. And you're just at it all day. You have a morning, you have an afternoon, and you have an evening. And you go home and then you do it all again the next day, and it's exhausting. And I've worked on a show at the Arts and Culture Center in October where we did seven hour days, and we used maybe about five, hour, five of those seven hours. Because you get to a point where you're done all the things you wanted to do, and yes, if you had four extra hours in the evening, you would start something else, but you only have an hour and a half or two hours left. And if you're happy with your product, there's no reason to well, what can we do to fill up these hours? Like, it's amazing how they get filled when you have a 12-hour day. Or when you have the culture of a 12-hour day. Yeah. It's like, well, we have all this time in the evening, so we'll nitpick at that later and make it better. But if you're working seven-hour days, it's already fine. And none of that seven-hour day felt rushed. All of it felt completely... We were taking our time. We were doing all the things we wanted to do. We were hitting our checklists. Like it was so, and I mean, it was a very easy show. It was a one woman show that we had done already twice this year, but there were new aspects. We were moving into a ginormous theater with a lot more technology than we'd ever worked with. So there was learning, but it was still very smooth sailing, I'd say. But like you say, I think the pandemic has shifted people's ideas and has perhaps made people a little bit more thoughtful about priorities instead of maybe rushing through a process. Okay, yeah, we have a 12-hour day and we're going to have supper and we're going to work. Oh, wait, maybe we don't actually need to do that. Maybe we can just as easily work a regular day like everyone else and we, we can achieve what we need to achieve. I'm curious to see what changes afterwards when we're, you know, safely allowed to make theater again globally. 
Yes, because one of the things about time, of course, now is you want to limit the amount of, uh, you know, like time, space, people, place, right? Like, <laughs> that's the thing. So we want to, we don't want to do 12 hours. We want to limit the number of people that we're interacting with. We want to limit the time that we're in closed spaces. And should a vaccine become uh, a thing, then that becomes, you know, less of an issue. Um, but I don't know, I think a lot of people have been thinking and reconsidering um, during the time that we had to think and reconsider. Um, and uh, it's my hope that we've come out of it a lot more thoughtful. I think we'll just be so grateful to be able to make anything that it doesn't matter how much time we have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. We'll sit in a room together again and make art. It will just be what it is. Do you have a dream project? I don't know. In terms of actually kind of yes, a couple I guess, some of which I've have probably passed me by, but uh, I've always wanted to be in Fiddler on the Roof because my father is Jewish and I grew up watching that. And it, it kind of changed, like, I've always wanted to be um, Chava, the, like, youngest daughter, but, or no, the youngest daughter that, like, has lines. Um, and uh, then it kind of had to move on to, like, Hoddle, okay, she's the middle one who falls in love with the, um, the, what is it, he's a, he's the teacher, but he's a radical, right, he's a radical. And then, now I guess I'd have to be like the mother or maybe the matchmaker. Anyways, I'd love to be in a production of Fiddler on the Roof just because it's what I grew up with. And there's a local book that I heard was maybe being made into a film. I never heard anything about it from then, um, but it's Jessica Grant's Come Thou Tortoise. And I would love to be the girl in that book. She is so fascinating. She is so interesting. I haven't read it in a while, but I used to use an audition piece. I used to use an audition piece from that book. I love this question because I, uh, not that I project what people's dream projects are, but I'm constantly surprised. That's incredible. I also love that book. It's fantastic. It's so creative because it's set locally, but she changes all the names of the places to be kind of like colloquialisms, I guess. So like Signal Hill becomes Seagull Hill, Mundy Pond is Monday Pond, and like the Purity Factory is the Piety Factory. Like it's really cute, but still really smart. Like it's not dumb, like it's not cutesy. It's quirky and really smart. And a very different voice at that time and even now. Yeah. Absolutely. Listen, thank you, Kat. That's it. That's all I got for you. Thank you so much. That was really fun.